0: Everyone and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Corr. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Joshua Sharpstein. He is here today to talk about his new book, The Public Health Crisis Survival Guide, Leadership and Management in Trying Times. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by uh, telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. I am a
1: pediatrician. I now work at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health where I teach uh, students in health policy and do some research. Um, In between my pediatric training and coming to Johns Hopkins, I worked uh, in several jobs in government. I was the health commissioner for the city of Baltimore. I was the principal deputy commissioner at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And I was the secretary of health for the state of Maryland.
0: So, what inspired you to write the Public Health Crisis Survival Guide?
1: Well, um, I took these jobs in uh, management and public health, not really realizing what I was going to get myself into. And I started by thinking, you know, the first thing you need to do in a job is just listen and be uh, thoughtful and be a strategic planner. And from the moment I set foot, for example, into the Baltimore City Health Department, I was hit with all these different crises, and I didn't have any luxury to be a (laughs) listener, um, really, you know, for an extended period of time, no ability to do strategic planning, and suddenly so much depended on how I reacted to crises. And I'll just give you the, you know, very first example, like, as I was walking into my office on the first day, the phone was ringing, and it was a reporter from the local paper telling me that there was someone in the city who had been jumped by a rabid raccoon. The raccoon had like, you know, salivated all over her face and she needed to get the rabies treatments. And our health department had promised that we would give them to her, but we'd missed the deadline. And so the reporter said, I have two questions. How often do you promise to give the rabies treatment to someone um, and fail? And second, is this woman going to get rabies? And, you know, that was sort of a wake up call for me. I was not expecting that. And I was able to find, you know, a few very important words where I said, I will call you back, you know, but I realized that doesn't last for very long. And I had to call the reporter back and figure out what to say. And it just never really let up. and, and so what I really realized was that it's important to be able to think about crises strategically, not be view them as interruptions to what you're trying to do, but really ways to um, find strength and authority and ultimately gain credibility so that you can manage them well on the one hand, but also accomplish you know, the, the more strategic things you want to do.
0: So it appears the, the book was structured in a very uh, specific way. Could you talk a bit about that?
1: Sure. Well, you know, the goal of this book is to be readable, you know, for people to be able to experience some of the stories um, of crises in history and crises that I and others have experienced while also learning the general lessons along the way. The first section tells the story of some um, crises in history. The second section is about the tools of managing crises, how to set up an incident command system, how to recognize crises early, how to pivot from a crisis to talking about how to prevent a crisis. And for that section, I've actually gone out and found people who have managed or experienced great crises to write their own stories. So it's both some stories from my experience, their experience in the context of actual skills that people can learn. And, and the last section is a little bit more about strategy, when to apologize, how to apologize. I, I mean, that's a becomes a major focus, causes people a lot of stress. And I'm not very sure how much is written about that topic other than this. Um, and the last chapter is how to think about this idea that crises really are opportunities. It's not an opportunity to be crass or um, opportunistic, but it is an opportunity to talk about issues that really do matter to people um, in a way that may lead to action. So it's more strategic. So it goes from history to management to strategy.
0: One of the things I found Very interesting was all the experiences you went through on the first week of your job as the health commissioner of Baltimore. It wasn't just the raccoon situation, but you had a whole slew of things thrown at you right off the bat. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Sure. Well, I told you about day one, and then we had a situation where there were college students who were giving food to people who are homeless in downtown Baltimore. And it turns out that the health department that I was newly in charge of had been giving them citations, tickets, and fining them, because they didn't have adequate access to hand washing, which was apparently required by our regulations. And there was a big story in the paper. And the paper said something uh, to the effect of uh, the students were going to be uh, practicing some civil disobedience against the health department. And one of the students was quoted saying, these are stupid rules. I bet if the health commissioner were hungry, he'd want food. You know, Mm -hmm. and so I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, how how do I deal with this situation? Civil disobedience against the health department. Then we had a tragedy in the next day where uh, a couple people froze to death. It was December and we had people who are homeless uh, freeze to death. And it turned out we opened a winter shelter only when it was 25 degrees Fahrenheit and 15 mile an hour winds. And so a reporter called and said, does that make sense? Because it wasn't quite that cold, but two people froze to death. I thought that was a good question, but I was able to say, I'll call you back, you know, and try to think about what was going on. And you know, by the end of the week, we'd gotten a warning letter from the Food and Drug Administration, um, basically saying that our approach for overseeing research at the health department was totally um, off track, that we, we didn't have the right ethics committee, that we didn't keep minutes of the meetings, we didn't categorize the the studies correctly, and they were going to shut down all the research. And I was like, oh, you know, how much research could we possibly be doing? And then the infectious disease doctors came in and said, well, you know, we treat all our tuberculosis patients on research protocols. Like, if we had to stop doing that, that would be an infectious disease emergency in the city. So all these things were happening and looming over everything was the fact that um, that January 1st, or just a couple weeks away, this was mid-December 2005, um, the nation was shifting to Medicare Part D, which was prescription drug coverage for seniors, which you know seemed like it would be a good thing to have a benefit. But hidden in that policy was the fact that about 25,000 very vulnerable people in Baltimore who were both eligible for Medicaid and Medicare would be switching from a drug coverage that was very stable for them. They could get any drug at any pharmacy to where they now were in a special plan that might not cover their drug or their pharmacy. And they would find out when they went to get a refill starting January 1st. So that, you know, we talk about seizure medicines, diabetes medicines, psychosis medicines, very important for people to get their medicines. I was worried that these very vulnerable, low-income older adults in the city would would start to suffer some, some consequences. So we had sort of the day-to-day emergencies and a big one that I was quite worried about.
0: What on earth was going through your head at the end of that first week?
1: Um, I was wondering what I got myself into. I, you know, really didn't have a lot of experience <laughs> um, in that sort of thing when I, I took that job. I was working um, at Capitol Hill um, and seeing patients in the emergency department and the urgent care clinic at Children's National Medical Center and i had applied for the job of city health commissioner you know because i was living in baltimore taking the train down to washington trying to i thought it'd be a good learning experience just to interview and i sort of got excited by the idea of doing it and i guess i did well in the interview and the next thing you know i'm in charge of an agency of a thousand people and you know 250 million dollar budget and i'd never done anything like that before and you know all the things that i tried to prepare for i was just didn't see that there are just things you can't prepare for, that there are these crises that happen. And really, whether you succeed or fail in a lot of jobs doesn't depend on how good your strategic plan is, but how well you can manage crises. And I I really learned that, you know, the hard way.
0: How do you define a public health crisis? So, um,
1: for the purpose of of policy in the book, I used um, a couple different definitions. The most important concept, though, is when I say crisis, I don't just mean problem. A lot of people think crisis and problem are interchangeable. So something might be a great big problem, but not a crisis. And something might be really not a problem at all, but cause a huge crisis. So to me, the key element of crisis is the perception that there is uh, something that really matters, that a lot is on the line, that decisions have to be made in the short term, um, that it's oftentimes uh, crises are symbolic of something larger, you really feel that, you know, stress in the back of your neck that like, uh uh-oh, you know, this really matters. That to me, that sense is what a crisis means. And, you know, a crisis can be caused obviously by like an earthquake, a pandemic flu, but it can also be caused by a bad audit report that confirms everyone's thinking that maybe your agency or your office that can't do its job. Um, You know, one of the most unpredictable crises that I felt when I was working at the state level was when we discovered we had about 30 million extra dollars in the budget and you're like how can that cause a crisis how can it cause a crisis to have 30 million extra dollars well it turns out that money was supposed to be spent for services for people who are developmentally disabled and there, you know those people and their families and friends they were pretty unhappy that we hadn't spent it for them. There were people on the waiting list. And I understood that they were furious, really. And they went to the legislature and the governor and said, you know, this agency can't do its job, you know, and it became a real uh, crisis for us, even though we had found 30 million extra dollars. So, so many things can cause a crisis. Um, Interestingly, one of the things people ask me a lot is, why isn't this problem more of a crisis? Why isn't Lead poisoning, more of a crisis. You know, we see what happened in Flint. That was certainly a crisis. But in many other places, people don't perceive it as a crisis. What about cardiovascular disease or a certain kind of cancer? Or how come people aren't paying attention to it? And I think how you um, approach problems so that people feel that urgency is a really important issue if you want to get things done.
0: Can you talk a bit about the, the history of public health crises in America? Um, maybe go into some of the major ones. And also, you know, I, I'd love an example of of one that was handled really well and one that was handled poorly and, and what you think went right and wrong in those scenarios.
1: Sure. Um, you know, one of the misconceptions people have about health policy is that it was sort of concocted by some, you know, experts who were all knowing after a very long process of thoughtfully weighing every possible option. You know, really nothing could be further from the truth. So much of what we think about as our public health system or our healthcare system, the the fundamental policies came about because of crises. And some of those crises were handled well, some of them not so well. And it really makes a difference. Um, I'll tell you, Uh, about a crisis that happened in um, 1937, uh, which uh, related to an early antimicrobial. wasn't quite an antibiotic, but it had some activity against bacteria called sulfanilamide. And um, the salespeople for this particular product, it was sold for sore throats and other things, um, uh, wanted to have a liquid form. And the company, the Massengill company, decided to mix it up in something, and they tested it for its odor and its taste and how it looked. It was pink. And then they shipped it out, but they never just tested it for safety. And in Tulsa, Oklahoma, they first noticed that people were uh, dropping dead after um, uh, trying the elixir sulfanilamide, the liquid form. And the word got back to a little agency um, in the federal government um, that by then was, I think, called the Food and Drug Administration, or the Food, Drug, and Insecticide Agency. And this agency, people didn't know about it. It was pretty small. And it had been trying for a long time to get more authority. At the time, people could sell anything. There would have been no requirement that the Food and Drug Administration at that time review the safety of that, um, of that medicine before it went on the market. People were allowed to just come up with medicines and sell them. And so um, that agency noticed right away that this was a crisis and they emptied the agency. They took all their inspectors to try to figure out what was going on. They realized that the, that liquid was sort of like antifreeze and it was totally toxic and they had the company do a recall. But then they, they didn't stop there. They sent people on the road. They embedded reporters. They brought reporters along and these FDA inspectors went to the forest reaches of the mountains in you know, North Carolina to track down even a single bottle. And oftentimes they would go in And they would knock on the door and someone would be dead and the bottle would be opened. Um, But other times they they found it and they recovered essentially all of the extra um, medicine. And this was documented on the front pages of the paper. There were newsreels before movies. And suddenly this little agency that nobody even understood existed had risen to the challenge and saved uh, thousands of lives, potentially in the United States. And then they used that Um, attention to say, we can prevent this the next time if you allow us to review drugs for safety before they go on the market. And in 1938, Congress passed the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which gave that authority to a regulatory agency for the first time in the world. And one of the reasons FDA is what it is, is because that agency responded so well to the elixir-sulfanilamide crisis in 1937. So that's a good example. Um, there's another example um, from the 1970s uh, when there was a concern that um, there might be a flu pandemic in the United States. And uh, the concern came about because uh, a recruit died at a Fort Dix in, in New Jersey. And the surveillance of the flu virus that that person had um, suggested that it might not be the normal seasonal flu, um, that it was a swine flu um, and could potentially be like a, a pandemic strain. And people started to worry it could be the pandemic strain like of 1918, 1919 that killed you know so many people. And so they had a decision time at CDC, what do you do? And the CDC director at the time was really excited about doing something big. And he proposed and got advisors to support the idea of having a national vaccination campaign. And at the time, flu vaccine wasn't really the big thing it was, it is now every year. And he proposed though, that instead of 10 million people or 15 million people getting vaccinated, that they would try to vaccinate all 300 million Americans in a year because otherwise, they could have this horrible uh, pandemic. And he had President Gerald Ford announce um, that this was a national campaign because we didn't want, you know, potentially millions of people in the United States to die. And, you know, from the moment that announcement started, you could imagine that people were thinking we will be the heroes just like the FDA a few decades earlier. This will be great for us, for the CDC, for public health. But there were some major problems. They they didn't really plan the campaign well. Um, there were problems with how they designed the clinical studies. They did not um, provide any liability relief initially to the company, so nobody wanted to make the vaccines. But more broadly, they didn't stop and say, we have one patient who died. Is anyone else ever going to get sick with this virus? And so there were public health leaders from around the country saying, why are we vaccinating people against a disease? We don't really know if it even still exists. But with the president having signed on it just, it just had its own momentum. And so they announced this huge vaccination campaign in the fall. Some states refused to participate. And uh, what wound up happening was no one ever got sick again from the swine flu, but people started getting side effects from the vaccine, including a terrible side effect known as Guillain-Barre syndrome, which can be associated with um, uh, paralysis. And so uh, the CDC was forced in December of that year after President Ford Possibly not coincidentally, lost the election. Um, you know that they suspended the whole campaign, and decades later, um, people still cite that as why you can't trust the government on vaccines. The CDC's had a very hard time outgrowing that legacy, and it's been uh, very unfortunate. And you know, the idea of being prepared was a good one. Rushing forward with a huge response to try to save the country, you know, so forcefully was not the right idea, and. Uh, it really came back to the hurt public health.
0: How do you first begin to recognize something is becoming a public health crisis? So, um,
1: you know, that's pretty important. Uh, the first part of getting uh, responding well is knowing you're in one. And that's easier said than done, because, you know, one of the reasons the crises become so bad and people get fired and all sorts of other problems happen is because they don't realize they have a crisis. Um, And so the first thing is you've got to be open to the idea that crises can happen. And then when people come in and tell you a story and tell you it's all fine, it's really important to kind of kick the tires of that and and ask. But it's good to be aware of the reasons that people miss crises. And those reasons um, include that people tend to think that things are all right, because if your day yeah. is that everybody is everything is the same every day in your job and then something looks a little different, the tendency is to say, well, it's probably just the same. And if you think about the Three Mile Island nuclear catastrophe, the dials were saying there was a big problem and people were going like, must be a problem with the dials. Mm-hmm. You know, and only until someone came in from home and said, it's an actual problem that people started to realize that they almost had a meltdown. Um, people can miss crises because of trust. They mistakenly trust someone, you know? This seems like it's a bad problem, but but this person, you know, telling me it isn't, so so what, So what? let's just not worry about it. There's a very extreme example of that of a physician in Great Britain who was an unbelievable serial killer, and all these people were suspicious that his patients were dying, and some even told the police, but when they went back after he'd killed many, many people, They said, well, I mean, you know, he seemed like such a good doctor and, you know, why would we not trust him? So um, there are reasons like that. I I think within an organization, um, if the organization has a tendency to blame people who are raising issues or say, like, just pipe down, we've all got it under control. People will not say if they're worried about something. And one of the most important lessons, I think, is to create a culture where people are worried about something. They should be able to voice it so you can identify if there's a crisis early because that really leads you to a good response.
0: Once you've determined something is a public health crisis, uh, can you talk about the importance of uh, defining roles and management of the people handling the crisis?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's pretty it's pretty important. You know, um, in the book, I tell the story of how I was health commissioner and I was just, you know, going about my day and there was a power outage in one of the other health department buildings. And, you know, people there wanted to know whether to go home. Seems like a pretty simple thing. And they didn't know who to call. So they called me on my cell phone. They called my office. They called my chief of staff. They called her cell phone. They called City Hall. They called HR for the city. They were calling all over, and we were all giving different answers. So there was, you know, total confusion, and I couldn't find my chief of staff. I didn't know what to say. We didn't know how to communicate with people. It was just a huge mess. And this is a tiny. It wasn't really a crisis in the sense of our jobs were on the line at that point, but we were just like totally unable to react to a different situation. And in the middle of that, after like. An hour of trying to figure out whether we were going to send people home or not. Someone came running in and said, "You know, we have freezers in that building that have all our vaccines. We have all our vaccines for the city of Baltimore in that building. We've got to get it out of there before it defrosts and there, or you know it because it spoils basically, mm-hmm. and we can't use the vaccine." And they, oh, that could have been a huge crisis. Can you imagine? You know the headlines. So then we had to scramble to do that and find out what to do, and it just like totally took over my day. And we said you know, afterwards, let's get together and figure out how we don't have to do this again. And it, in the end, it's, it's yeah, of course, part of that is, all right, we want to make sure we have a, a generator for that refrigerator or things like that to prevent a problem. But those aren't fail safe. You have to have an approach to managing crises that, you know, you can switch to in the middle of the day and where decisions get made. And so we set up uh, something called an instant command system where, We would have one person as the incident commander, and everyone would know that that's the person making the key decisions. And then uh, she could uh, set up teams to help a team to get, you know, safeguard the vaccine, a team to notify the employees, a team, but everything would go through her. And uh, we set up some structure for that. And I know that there were power outages, but they never interrupted my day again you know, and my fantastic chief of staff handled them. But it was because we had a structure that people knew um, we would send out an email. We are now in an instant command. The instant commander is Michelle. Here's what you need to know. And if you have questions, here's how you can contact her. We we could spread that through our phone tree if the email is down, whatever, whatever it was. And uh, we use that kind of system for actual emergencies as well, not just for, you know, internal power outages. In fact, in the book, I talk about Um, Ebola in Liberia, Mm -hmm. where there was total chaos um, in terms of managing Ebola in Liberia. People were dying in the street. Um, The government, you know, with the legitimacy of the government was being questioned. And there were apparently these meetings with 100 people in the room that lasted for hours and no decisions would get made. And it was like anarchy. And they actually asked a relatively junior staffer in the health department, To be the incident commander, and they switched to an incident command system. And he set up teams and established clear authority, and that made an enormous difference. So, the concept that you can get organized applies from, like, you know, one building losing its power to stopping a deadly infectious disease outbreak for an entire country.
0: What are what you call emergency powers? Uh, How and when are they used?
1: Emergency powers are special powers that people who are serving in particular jobs get under the law when there is an emergency. So, for example, when I was a city health commissioner, um, I had the authority in the case of an emergency to quarantine the entire city. And that's because one of the reasons that health department, which is the oldest continuously serving health department in the country, when that was formed at the end of the 18th century, um, uh, yellow fever outbreaks were a big problem. So the health The commissioner had to do quarantines, and so there are some very unusual types of powers. When I was the state health secretary, um, I could have um, essentially conscripted doctors and nurses for particular types of treatment, and that comes from you know needing people to take care of infectious diseases. So the decision about when and how to use emergency powers is a very important one in an emergency. Obviously. From my perspective, it's really important that they be needed and that people really explain how and why they will be used.
0: Can you talk about the importance of communication in a public health crisis? Uh, What's the best way to communicate with the public and prevent panic and rumors and things like that?
1: Sure. So um, I remember when there was uh, the anthrax attacks after 9-11, going to a press conference Uh, that the Department of Health and Human Services had put on about um, anthrax. And actually, this is before it was recognized that there were anthrax attacks. There was an official from HHS who got up and told everyone there was nothing to worry about, that the person who had gotten sick from anthrax was a spelunker and probably got it in a cave. And while he was saying that, there were some scientists behind him who didn't look like they agreed with him. And that was... You know, pretty much the exact wrong way to go about communicating in a potential crisis. They Mm -hmm. didn't have the person who knew what was going on really answering the questions. They gave definitive answers when they didn't know. And, you know, when it turned out it really was an anthrax attack, that person was never seen from again in terms of the public response. And I think that um, there, The CDC, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, has put out some very helpful starting points for communication. And, you know, their major uh, recommendations include to be first. Don't wait till you have every piece of information if other people are going out in a crisis and and talking. You really, uh, if you want to be the credible agency, should be out there talking and you can talk about what you know and what you don't know. Um, You have to be right. It's very important to give accurate information um, because it's essential to be credible. If people don't believe what you're saying, then you're really um, unable to function effectively in an emergency. Uh, the CDC also recommends expressing empathy, not judging people, um, but ex- understanding why they're anxious in an emergency, um, promoting action, telling people what they can do, and being um, uh, and showing respect. Um, It's very important, for example, in an emergency to be respectful of everyone. And that can be very hard in some situations because uh, there's often a lot of criticism thrown around in the middle of a crisis. And sometimes people who are responsible for crisis management feel that personally and they lash out. And that just creates a very uncomfortable um, situation And, and it creates people wanting to lash out even more. And in order to quell that, it's really important even if somebody's criticizing you, I think, to, to be respectful and just as calmly explain what your answer is to that criticism. You know, I think that's part of the challenge of communications. Um, people can practice that. I mean, there are obviously some really natural communicators in, in health and public health, but you can practice. And uh, with practice, you can get a lot better. And I wasn't that great at this when I started. I certainly felt more confident by the end. Um, but even when you're pretty good, there are a lot of challenges that get thrown at you. you know you can get um, all kinds of political challenges, people have other agendas there. Um, and so just beyond the words that come out of your mouth, how you communicate is really important. I'll give an example. when I was the health secretary for the state of Maryland and Ebola was you know raging in, in a few countries in Africa, people were pretty nervous about Ebola coming to the United States. And we had, of course, this terrible uh, tragedy of a patient dying in, in Dallas and some of the nurses getting sick. And so it was a lot of tension and fear. And some people were saying the government's not telling us that Ebola is really airborne transmitted. And, you know, so there were all kinds of rumors flying around. I think when the CDC director testified before Congress and told people it was very unlikely there would be a major outbreak of a bowl in the United States. One of the members of Congress said something like, um, this is like the first scene of a horror movie, and you reassure us, but well, we all know what the second scene is like. Yeah, you know, So just, just pure panic, really. And so what we did, it's not just the words coming out of our mouth, but we, uh, with the governor, Governor O'Malley, we had every major hospital system in the state send their experts to our press conferences. And so it's like, look, You don't just have to take my word for it. Here is the top infectious disease specialist at Johns Hopkins. Here's one from the University of Maryland. Here's one from MedStar. And we're all standing together because we are in this together. This isn't us versus them. This is, you know, how we're responding together to this challenge. And that became, I think, very, very helpful to help people feel some level of confidence um, about how the situation was being handled. And no matter what I had said, it would not nearly have been as effective as that picture of the people that, you know, you usually trust saying that um, we're doing the right thing.
0: Can you talk a bit about the responsibility and blame involved in these crises?
1: Sure. So, you know, this is something that's a bit of a taboo subject, you know. Um, I'll tell you, nobody... When I was thinking of taking a job in public health said so to me, you may have to apologize for people and you might even have to think about resigning. But I think the truth is a lot of people in, in leadership positions find themselves wondering when to apologize and whether they should resign and, and how to uh, handle that. And you know, I think there, there are a few different situations. There's one situation where like you are totally or your agency is completely responsible and when that happens, you know, my recommendation is apologize and fix it as quick as you can. You know, I got great advice from um, a lawyer uh, named Ralph Tyler once where he said, the most important thing you can say if there's a problem is it's already fixed. Then you can give your answer whose fault it was, whatever you're going to say. If you fixed it, fix it first if you possibly can. So, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one day I was just minding my own business at my desk, clicking through a few headlines, and I saw that there was a health department that had pretty much outlawed kids wearing sunscreen at camp. And they were quoting dermatologists in the article saying this is the worst policy ever, given the risk of skin cancer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And parents were saying the whole policy seems stupid. And I was kind of chuckling to myself, like, which, you know, idiotic health department put out this policy? And then I read a couple paragraphs down, and it's like, that's my health department. I'm responsible for that policy. And it's like Friday at six o'clock at night. And so, you know, we had to decide what to do. I was just imagining in my mind the governor reading the story. And, you know, I uh, worked with our team to pull that policy back within about an hour. And so then the the headline on the website said, Maryland considering changes to policy. And by the time the paper came out the next morning, Maryland revokes policy on sunscreen. And, you know, I was mortified. I was so embarrassed that we'd done this. We'd had this story. It was so embarrassing. But we'd fixed it. And then I found that I was using that as an example in different talks I was giving. People would say, I disagree that you're doing And I'd say, look, if we're doing it wrong, you know, we'll fix it, just like we did with the sunscreen in summer camp. Now, there's some other more tricky situations, particularly where you may be partly to blame and um, others may be to blame. And those are very difficult because if you shoulder too much responsibility, then, you know, people could call for your head really unnecessarily. Um, Those are situations that are very tricky. And in the book, I talk about, you know, different ways of dealing with that. I think having a really honest, dispassionate look at you know what caused the problem is very important, and sometimes that is best handled by like an expert panel or an outside group.
0: What kind of opportunities come out of public health crises?
1: Well, um, I think this is really not well understood, but so much of what we have in the public health system today is because people um, saw opportunity in crisis. The FDA back with the sulfonilamide crisis, they didn't just stop the country from getting poisoned with this, you know, pink elixir. They very boldly said to the country and to Congress, we need a law that's going to prevent this from happening again. Now, um, I think that that made the difference for why we have such a law, and that prevented so much other harm from happening. And in a crisis, people really pay attention. Um, The FDA actually was trying to get that law passed for two decades, and they couldn't do it. When there was a crisis and people were listening, they were able to do it. And I think that's an important lesson. That doesn't mean you can get whatever you want passed, but it's a chance. You have an opening to fix a problem. And I think people who just respond to the crisis are squandering that opportunity, uh, potentially. So how do you do that? You can go too far. You can say, well, the very first thing I'm going to say about this particular problem is that we need a law so that it never happens again. I think at that point people think like, are you really here to help us or just for your agenda? It's really important for an agency or an office to lead by really addressing the problem. Like when FDA sent all of its inspectors out to collect um, the extra dangerous medicine, you know that gave people confidence that FDA really cared. And then FDA explained the policy issue. I think that, that's an important thing to do. Um, and then I think it's important to um, squarely explain to people what's at stake and what can be done to be very specific? And when you do that, you can get a lot of uh, positive results. When I was the health secretary in Maryland, we had a um, horrible situation where uh, one person died, two people were severely injured from like flesh-eating bacteria that um, resulted from liposuction at a was called like a med spa, a little clinic on the side of the road. And, you know, we responded immediately, we shut down the clinic, we did an inspection, we found all these problems, and many people might have left it there. But we looked at the fact that a lot of these clinics around the country were having problems, and that there was a potential way to prevent them, which would be to require this type of clinic to have a special license. And so pretty soon after we shut down the clinic, we started talking about the idea that maybe there's something that could be done to prevent it from happening again and we did a public comment period to get ideas we engaged with the medical profession that might have been a little skeptical of that idea we work with them to develop a good policy proposal we work with legislators and we work with the media and in my classes here at Johns Hopkins I show you know some of the news clips and the news clips start by saying when you go to a restaurant you think you know that it's been inspected you might think that that's happened when you go to get plastic surgery but in these little med spas, that isn't actually happening. And, and they kind of frame the whole thing around the standards and what can be done for prevention. And I say to the students, you know, um, what, if, I, if we hadn't at the health department really started talking about what need, is needed to prevent this, how, that, how might that story have turned out? And they'll say, well, the story might have just been there was a horrible clinic. And, you know, for some reason, um, maybe it was a doctor, maybe it was a the nurse, these patients got injured. And that's the whole story. So you have this chance in that moment to make people think about the issue differently, to think about prevention. I think people should try to take that chance. Um, It's a little risky. People could say, like, well, why didn't you do this before? They can always say that. And you just answer, you say, look, you know, we all could have thought about this before, but... Right now, we have a problem that we recognize. We should fix that. And in in Maryland, we got a, a law passed to do just that. And, you know, on many other instances, we were able to get new policies um, by thinking through carefully, you know, what should be done as a result of a crisis.
0: Do you have any advice for our listeners if they end up being in the general public during a major public health crisis?
1: Well, um, I think uh, there there are different kinds of crises that that can hit, and obviously it's it's very uh, it can be very scary depending on what's going on. It's really important to seek out good information. Rumors are incredibly common. There's a whole field of science about why rumors develop, but when people are anxious and uncertain, and a lot is at stake, rumors tend to fly around. And I think really educating yourself is is extremely important. Hopefully. You'll be somewhere where there's a um, very capable public health department um, or healthcare organization that is going to be able to give out good information and be responsive to you, and you know, tell you not only what you can do to protect yourself, but what's really going on and what can be done to prevent a problem like this from happening again. You know, a lot of crises that we're worried about affect whole communities. They're not one person at a time. I mean, in the United States, we like to think about everyone's individual responsibility, which is very important. But communities have responsibilities, too. And problems affect communities um, that there's nothing an individual can do to, to get to avoid. You know, it's really about the community. And so I think part of being prepared for crises means... Um, being willing to engage in policy discussions and town halls and other things uh, about what really happened and what can be done, maybe not just every individual having, you know, armamentarium of pharmaceuticals at home, but like what what could be done together to really reduce the risk of a problem in the future.
0: Well, Josh, I've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, My final question for you is, what are you working on now?
1: Um, Thanks. At the moment, I'm actually uh, working on the uh, opioid epidemic quite a lot. Um, That is obviously a major crisis facing this country today. There's just a report out that there are likely more than 70,000 overdose deaths um, in uh, 2017 in the United States, which would be an all-time high. Many states and localities are dealing uh, with this challenge, and uh, I've been working with a number of states and localities um, and some people in the federal government to think about the kinds of responses that might make a difference. So I'm, um, you know, I I think that my book is a little bit of a uh, manual for me in some of these discussions, Um, but. Uh, I think this is a a moment for the United States of great stress and terrible, terrible heartbreak across the country. And there's a real opportunity for people in medicine and public health to come together and reduce this terrible toll.
0: Well, I'd love to stay in touch and uh, have you back on the show again in the future. Uh, I would love to be
1: back. Thank you for having me. Um,
0: Thank you again for being on the show today. I enjoyed it. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, Take care. Bye bye.